This morning, we are looking at Parshat Baha'u'llah, which is this week's um, portion uh, that we read in the synagogue. And uh, I'm going to start. There are lots of interesting things we could talk about, but I'm going to start with chapter 11 in the book of Numbers, um, Bamidbar, uh, because we're going to look at three separate, uh, yet I'm going to argue, related incidents in the, uh, in the Torah. And all of them in Parshat Baha'u'llah, uh, they're related temporally. That is, they happen at around the same time. And I think they're related thematically and maybe even uh, in causation. Um, that is, one uh, spurs the other. And we'll begin with um, verse 4 in chapter 11. Uh, it says... The way that the JPS translation has this is the riffraff, asafsuf, means the no goodniks, basically. Um, the riffraff in their midst fa- felt a gluttonous craving, and the Israelites wept and said, if only we had meat to eat. Um, remember that they're eating manna through the desert, and they're not happy about it, um, We remember the fish we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlics. Now our gullets are shriveled. There's nothing but manna to look forward to. Now, first of all, obviously, (laughs) the fish in Egypt wasn't so free. Um, Sure, I suppose uh, you don't have to pay in currency if you're a slave, but you certainly pay a lot if you're a slave. And so they are distorting in their own minds clearly um, what the situation was in Egypt, but more uh, more fundamentally is the depiction of the Israelites uh, as people who throughout the wanderings in the desert are unhappy and complain. Um, There aren't passages where it says, and the Israelites were so thrilled to be led through the desert by God and so grateful to Moses, and they all express their thanks. But there are lots of passages where they're unhappy and express their disfavor and, and, uh, and dismay. And this passage in particular gives some credence to the idea that it wasn't entirely the Israelites. It was what the, uh, the rabbis call the Erev Rav, the, the, um, the people, the admixture of people who fled from Egypt for various reasons with the Israelites, because the Hebrew says here, Asap Suf and the riffraff, they who were in their midst, first of all, who were the bad ones in their midst felt this craving, um, and they sat and wept, Gam B'nai Yisrael also the children of Israel, which suggests that it wasn't the children of Israel from whom this complaint originated. It was rather also the children of Israel who uh, picked up on the contagion of complaint. And that idea that um, complaint is contagious, that you can catch it from each other, um, is something that I think we all see. For example, if you have more than one child and one of them is complaining, so all of a sudden they're both complaining or all three of them or four of them or however many you have. Uh, and you know in organizations, 
when people start to complain, other people complain. Um, and what starts off as a gripe session becomes a full-blown, these are all the things that's wrong. And that's because we all have resentments. The world is not perfect for anyone, and it's not perfect at any time. And so when you give vent to um, what it is that bothers you, the person next to you is going to say, well, yes, that, but also listen to what bothers me. And it becomes a self-perpetuating and, and growing process that is evidenced here by the fact that the Israelites jumped on the bandwagon. And even if it didn't start with them, even if it started with this um, unenviable group of uh, borchers, which is the Yiddish word for complainers, um, even so, it becomes very quickly something that the Israelites themselves do. And as you can imagine, it is difficult, not only for the Israelites, but for Moses, because now Moses has to corral a group of unhappy, complaining people. And of course, it is not in his power to solve the complaint that they have. He can't magically produce meat in the wilderness, God can. And in fact, spoiler alert, God will. Um, but Moses can't solve it. All Moses can do is to feel um, that there's, not, there's nothing you can do for these people that will make them happy enough that they will not complain in the wilderness. I bring this up as the first in a triptych, actually, because the um, the next thing I want to I, I want to bring us to is Moses's role in this. And here Moses has a beautiful line, not often, I think, not not commented on or noticed as often as it might be um, in verse 12, chapter 11, verse 12. Did I conceive all these people? Did I bear them that you should say to me? Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries an infant to the land that you have promised. In other words, Moses compares himself to a nursing mother. Um, and, and in fact, there is a uh, there was a book about Moses's character that uh, calls Moses the nursing mother. And this is a rare example of a male leader using a female role to explain his own um, place. And there is something, first of all, you understand that Moses understands that real care and love and the zenith of leadership in some sense is the nursing mother. That's the image he chooses, that I have to suckle them and take care of them and wean them and bring them into the new land. And that is unusual, I think, as an image for a uh, for a male leader to choose. Um, and and then he goes on to say, I cannot carry all these people by myself. It's too much for me. And what interests me in this is not just Moses's despair and and reckoning of his own inability to 
to carry out this superhuman task, which is by himself to bring this people through the wilderness. But it is also, I think, a reflection of the fact that complaint begets complaint. That is, the complaints of the Israelites, as powerful and insistent as they are, evoke Moses's complaints as well, because there's a trigger that doesn't stop only with a single um, dissatisfaction that they don't have meat. Uh, Moses also starts to think, well, well, what about what about what I'm going through here? What about my difficulties? What about my pain? What about my trial and sorrow? And so uh, there is a, um, a linkage between the people's difficulty and Moses's difficulty that the commentators, some of them, um, allude to. And it is, of course, uh, not just an immediate reaction. They're complaining, I don't know what to do about it, but there's also uh, a venting of sorrows and of um, and of the kind of built up tension that you can imagine would be uh, central to a people moving through the wilderness. Um, and and before I get to the third in this triptych, I, I just want to say that that this dynamic is, it seems to me really evident and even constant in um, on social media and in public because everybody has their complaints. And what happens is that other people try to trump your complaint with my complaint. Um, and that is not to say that many of them are not legitimate, but it is to say that once the culture of complaint has been loosed, it is hard then to put it back. Um, in the last uh, one or two times I told uh, uh, of the daily inspiration, I tell the story of uh, of the uh, Americans who go to the Soviet Union and they find there an old Soviet Jew and they say to him, um, how is life? Here? He goes, oh, can't complain. And they say, but you want to go to America? He goes, I'd love to go to America. And they say, why? Why would you want to go to America? And he goes, because there I can complain. And that freedom to complain is very deep and dear to all of us, the ability to say what's wrong, but we have to realize how much it moves other people to do the same. And that's where we come to the third in these episodes of complaint. Uh, and here I'm going to ask you now uh, to turn to chapter 12 the next chapter. And how does this chapter begin? It's seemingly completely unrelated. It says, when they were in Chatzerot, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman he had married. He married a Cushite woman. They said, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he spoken through us as well? I realize what's happening here. Why are they gossiping, especially now, because Moses got married a long time ago? Why are they gossiping now? Why are they upset that it's a Kushite woman? So first of all, there are at least two possibilities about why they specifically identify her as a Kushite woman. One is that it just might mean she's outside of our tribe. The other might 
be because uh, a Kushite was darker in skin. Um, obviously, you realize that all the Israelites, I mean, you look at ancient Egyptians, you look at ancient Israelites, they were all going to be darker skinned um, than lighter, but a Kushite might have even darker skin, which probably an Ethiopian, uh, and it could be a color discrimination comment, or it could be she's not one of us, she's an outsider. We don't really know, um, or it could just be you don't, we don't like our in-law, uh, which is not that uncommon a phenomenon in human history. But deeper is what they go on to say, which has nothing to do with who Moses married. They go on to say, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? In other words, they've got a complaint too, which is, hey, why does Moses get all this stature? God spoke through us too. And it is the resentment and the complaint that seems to be behind their gossip about the Kushite woman. Because up till now, they haven't said anything. But it's only when the chain of complaining has started that suddenly they're complaining to Aaron and Miriam. And and this, it seems to me, ties all of these things together. Um, and they have even heard, I mean, maybe they didn't hear directly, but maybe they intuit that Moses is complaining to God. Moses is complaining to God, like, I can't take this on by myself. And maybe they're standing there thinking, well, how about us? Why doesn't God turn to us? After all, God speaks to us. Why, why should Moses be the only person who... Uh, who gets both the stature and also the difficulty of guiding this people through the wilderness. Now, all of this together is part of the deep Jewish understanding and comment on the power of speech. And speech, as you know, in the Jewish tradition, <clears throat> is, I think, unusually powerful. I say that because if you look at the beginning of the Torah, God creates the world through words. We say this every morning in our tefillot, in our prayers, Baruch she'amar v'haya ha'olam. Blessed be God who speaks and the world comes into being, right? God doesn't create through a magic wand. God creates through speech. God says something, and there's a world. God says, let there be light, and there is light. And so from the very beginning of the Torah, there is this um, emphasis and admonition that what you say has a profound effect on the world. And in an age in which what we say is so easily and widely broadcast, this becomes incredibly powerful and important. And you get tremendous wars about the words that people say uh, about different groups, different individuals, um, and this goes on and on. I don't know how many of you have been following this 
tremendous uh, controversy around J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter series, who wrote a long essay that's really, I think, interesting and worth reading um, about comments that she's made about transgenderism and how people have reacted to it and what they've said. But it's now become a giant thing. And really, it is about attitudes reflected in words. Um, and you know that things that you say to people can stay with them forever. And kindnesses and unkindnesses, both. Uh, and, and Moses, you know, then has to go on and, and, uh, and pray for Miriam in the shortest prayer, um, in the Torah, El Narafanala, um, five words where he says, Oh God, please heal her. And the, fact that Moses pleads for Miriam, who has insulted him, is first of all a measure of Moses's character. He's called in this parsha the humblest person on earth. But it is also a new reflection of the power of words, that God listens to Moses's words to heal Miriam, who injured Moses through words. And so... Part of the reason that this is so important right now is as people are thrown into more and more um, concentrated living together and frustrations in society in general because of so many limitations and restrictions mount and demonstrations and other things obviously erupt um, what we say really matters. It really matters. And how we speak about one another really matters. It makes a difference. And um, there are things we can say that are hurtful and things we can say that are healing and things we can say that are encouraging and things we can say that are dispiriting. And Baha'alotcha, with its various stories of the chain of complaint, the sense of Moses' inadequacy poured out before God, and gossip reminds us of all of this. I want to just say a couple words about the difference in the quality of um the complaints and the gossip. Complaint is one thing. Gossip is another. And as you, I'm sure, know, the Jewish tradition has a great deal to say about gossip, different categories of gossip, Motsi Shemra, Rufilut, Lashon Hara, all of them different categories depending on, on what kind of gossip it is, because there are lots of different kinds of gossip. Um, but the power of it is that it is very difficult, first of all, to disprove, to undo, as in the famous story with the feather pillow, but especially to forget. If I said to you, you know, I heard about person X, that they, I don't know, beat their kids. And then I tell you later, oh, you know what, I heard that, but actually it turns out not to be true. It is still hard to dislodge from your mind every time you see them. I once heard about you that you beat your kids. 
despite the fact that it isn't true. Because our minds are built to register words and ideas, and they're not built to automatically filter out the things that are not true. And so when we speak, especially when we speak of things we're not certain of, or things we're not, uh, we don't know, um, or we hear third hand, we have to realize that we're putting something out into the world and putting something into another's mind that might never be dislodged. As George Steiner, who recently died, who is a great scholar uh, and writer, I remember once hearing him in an interview said, I'm going to tell you the most important moment in human history. He said, the most important hum moment in human history is when someone asked someone else, where is the watering hole? Where can I get a drink? And he said, over there, when it was really over there. Not, he said, because it was the first lie, although it was, but it was because the, it was the first time that a human being realized I can create a reality in someone else's mind with my words. We create realities in each other's minds with our words. So we have to be very careful about how we use them. If nothing else, and there's a lot else, studying this week's Parsha certainly teaches us that. The words of the Torah that create that reality in our minds. Thank you for joining me. Hope I will see you on Shabbat.